0: But we're going to read now from Genesis 45, and as the next part of our series on the story of Joseph and his life. So Genesis 45. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, Make everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, And Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him, because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will be no ploughing or reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to prepare and preserve for you a remnant on earth, and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son, Joseph, says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and your grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have, I will provide for you there. Because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. And then down to chapter 46. So Israel set out with all that was his. And when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you. And I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Then Jacob left Bathsheba, and Israel's sons and took their father Jacob and their children and their wives and the carts that Pharaoh had sent to transport him. So Jacob and all his offspring went to Egypt, taking with them their livestock and the possessions they had acquired in Canaan. Jacob brought with him to Egypt his sons and grandsons and his daughters and granddaughters, all his offspring. These are the names of the sons of Israel, Jacob and his descendants who went to Egypt. And you can see all the names listed down there. And if you move down to verse 28, it says, Now Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to get directions to Goshen. When they arrived in the region of Goshen, Joseph had his chariot made ready and went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father and wept for a long time. Israel said to Joseph, now I am ready to die, since I have seen for myself that you are still alive.
1: So last week, we finished on a bit of a cliffhanger. And like every good story, the chapter break comes and we're left with the big question, what's going to happen next? Will Joseph tell his brothers who he is? Will Judah be killed for his brother Benjamin? Will the brothers themselves survive What's going to happen to Jacob? It's a fantastic drama, yet this week's passage turns out to be a bit of an anticlimax. You see, after the excitement of the first few verses where Joseph tells them who he is, it's very easy to read the rest of this passage as just a detailed record of Joseph's plans to bring his family to settle in the land of Egypt. In many ways, they are seemingly unnecessary chapters, compared to what has gone before. Actually, they remind me of a time when Liz and I were staying at a posh hotel. We were getting ready for dinner when there came a knock at the door. I opened the door and there was one of the hotel staff there and she said to me that she had come to turn down the bed. And she noticed my blank look and said, look, I can see that you don't know what that means, so let me show you. And without another word, she barged in, went over to our bed and literally folded down the bedspread a few inches so that getting into bed would be fractionally easier than it was before. And then she turned to me and said, that, sir, is what turning down the bed is. And she triumphantly marched off to the next room. Even now, as I remember the incidents, I'm... I can still think it is a mind-bogglingly useless thing to do. That someone is paid to go round hotel rooms and turn down the beds must be a joke. Someone is having a laugh. I'm going to get off my high horse now and get back to the passage, because in the same way that that is mind-bogglingly use- useless, it's very easy to have the, that view as we read these chapters. And particularly when you come to the list of names, because often they're seen in the Bible as the useless bits, the turn down the bed bits, where you're sat there scratching your head, looking at all these incomprehensible names and wondering why God chose to put them there in the first place. But we have to look at it from a different angle. The angle that says because they're in the Bible, it means that God wants us to read them and it means that they are important to us today. So more than being just an account of the travel plans of the people of of Jacob's family going down to Egypt, God wants us to see how he treats his promised people, how, how he gathers them, how he cares for them, how he builds them up into a family who blesses the nations. God wants us as the reader to see how God preserves his children, how he protects them from harm, even though on the outside it might seem like a worse situation to be in. Now, we need to hear this this morning, because maybe we just need reminding that in the middle of a big world drama, God is still tenderly caring for and protecting his people. So that brings us to our first point this morning, which is simply this, Joseph forgives his brothers. You can imagine the look on the faces of Joseph's brothers, as he reveals himself to them. It's the climax of the story. What is Joseph going to say? How hard is he going to rub their noses in what they did all those years ago when they sold him into slavery? How much pain is he going to make them feel? And yet what he does instead is he weeps with joy at seeing them and at seeing how much God had changed them. Look with me at verses one to three. It says this, then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard all about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. As we saw last week, Judah had just offered to lay down his life for his brother Benjamin. For Joseph, it was a massive change of heart compared to how his brothers had acted towards him in selling him to slavery. And for us as a reader, it's also a massive change compared to what we saw of Judah in chapter 38, where he was a complete rebel against God's ways and against God's people. So it's not surprising that Joseph is so emotional here. Previously, on on previous occasions when he'd met his brothers, he'd been able to hold it in. And when he couldn't, he'd go to a quiet place and cry there. But this time he's so overcome with emotion that to the surprise of everybody, he orders everyone out and he reveals himself to his brothers with great sobs of joy and anguish. We have to remember that men of Joseph's status in Egypt didn't do this sort of thing, which is why it caused such a commotion even in Pharaoh's household. And it's so dramatic that there's even a comical moment of misunderstanding. Joseph says uh, who he is and he wants reconciliation. He asks about his dad, but his brothers take it badly instead. They are terrified. Literally, the word means paralysed with fear. And no wonder, because Joseph had complete power over them. The boy whom they tried to kill was now alive. And not only that, he was now in a position where they were entirely at his mercy, And the brothers knew that Joseph has every right to seek revenge. And that's why they're terrified. And yet he says, draw near, guys. Come closer. He wants reconciliation and forgiveness. How can he want this after all they've done? Well, Joseph explains it. Look with me at verses five and six. Verse five says, and now do not be distressed. And do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been a famine in the land and for the next five years there will be no ploughing or reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Joseph's reason for wanting reconciliation is that he sees God's plans behind their actions. He sees that God has intended for him to be sent ahead of his brothers in order to save them from the famine. And he says it again in verse 8 and 9. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. They're humbling words, aren't they? He's saying this is God's work and this is God's plan. And that's Joseph's conviction. He preaches to his brothers, the doctrine of God's sovereignty, even over sin. And that doesn't mean the brothers can simply shrug off what they've done with the argument that, well, it was God's fault, God made them do it. No, the Bible makes it clear that everyone is totally responsible for every moral uh, wrong that we commit. And even in this story, That point is made obvious to the brothers as Joseph reminds his brothers that they had sold him into slavery, so they were culpable for their wrong, and yet God in his sovereignty and mercy had used their wrong for his glory and his plan. In other words, Joseph was showing them how in control God is and how he is gracious to use their mistakes, their sin, their wrongs for his good purposes and plans. And, you know, because Joseph can see God's sovereignty working behind the scenes and through every action, he is able to forgive his brothers for their moral evils. And yet at the same time, the passage makes the point that true forgiveness is also costly. Joseph's anguish, both his pain and his joy and his longing to see his dad are the price that he's had to pay here for their wrong. And that is why this is such a powerful picture of what true forgiveness is. So Tim Keller uh, says this about forgiveness. It's a form of suffering. You not only suffer the original loss of happiness, reputation and opportunity, as Joseph did. But now you forego the consolation of inflicting the same on them you're absorbing the debt you're taking the cost of it completely on yourself instead of taking it out on the other person it hurts terribly many people say forgiveness feels like a kind of death so to forgive someone isn't a matter of locking pinkies and saying make up make up never never break up neither is it pretending things never really happened rather forgiveness is the opposite of those things it involves looking at both the sin and the sinner and looking, looking the sinner squarely in the eye and saying, wrong is wrong. Even saying, I've been hurt, but I choose to forgive you. I choose not to take revenge. True forgiveness is taking the hit and the pain so that the offending party is not owed retribution. The forgiver lays down their lives under God's sovereignty so that the future is not scarred by the sin committed against them. And what made the pain that his brothers had caused Joseph bearable for him was that the knowledge, well, was the knowledge that God was in it all, bringing about a, bringing about a greater good that no one could ever have imagined. And not only did that make the pain bearable, but it also gave him the reason to forgive, because all that he had endured, because his brothers sold him into slavery, brought about the salvation of the children of Israel. And the rescue of the surrounding nations from famine it's an amazing picture of what true forgiveness is what it's about and what true forgiveness accomplishes and that picture lays the foundation for what comes next because the bigger picture of this story is about god gathering his people together and we see that from what happens in the rest of the chapter. But that gathering can only happen once Joseph has laid down his right for revenge and forgiven his brothers and restored them into relationship with himself, all of the sons of Jacob together as one in relationship with one another. That's what forgiveness brings. Unity and love and restored relationship. But this brings us to our our next point this morning, which is simply this God gathers his people. God gathers his people. Uh, Now much of the rest of the chapter is taken up with a description of how God brings Jacob and his whole family to Egypt. But the writer of the passage wants us to see that this move is not simply a geographical relocation, but spiritually Jacob's family had come a long way compared to what they were like at the beginning of the the account of Joseph back in chapter 37. And the writer shows this to us in a really subtle way. So verse 22 tells us this. To each of them, Joseph gave new clothing, but to Benjamin, he gave 300 shekels of silver and five sets of clothing. And then in verse 24. Joseph commands his brothers, do not quarrel along the way. And then in verse 27, he says this When Jacob saw the carts Joseph had sent to carry him back, the spirit of their father revived. So these are all allusions, and the writer is alluding to what had happened previously in this story. Previously, Joseph's brothers had been jealous of Joseph's clothing, and they'd even wanted to to kill him for it. And yet here, Joseph gives them new robes, open signs of his favour on that. Previously, they were a quarrelsome bunch. They they quarreled around the system uh, that they'd thrown Joseph in, and they were wondering what to do with Joseph. But here, Joseph commands them to go in peace. His His forgiveness had given them that peace. And previously, Jacob had nearly died with grief when Joseph was lost. And now the good news of Joseph's life gives him new life. They're all stunning reversals. There's new favour, there's new peace, there's new life. It's a picture of what happens when God's people are gathered and restored and forgiven in relationship with their God and with one another. And it's a picture that illustrates one of the great themes of the Bible. You see, when God's people come under God's rule and are blessed by following his ways, God gathers them together and forgives them and blesses them in fellowship. There are countless of times that this happens in the Bible. Usually it's a time of repentance. Often in the Old Testament, the people gather together in Jerusalem, outside the temple, and there's a great rejoicing and repentance and knowledge of God's forgiveness. In the New Testament, the the church is gathered uh, as God's people. And right through the, the past 2,000 years, history tells us that when God's word is faithfully preached, they're God's people gather together and they're a blessing to one another. And it's a picture that God wants us to meditate on, especially because of how lockdown has affected us meeting together as God's people today. I don't know about you, but I have really missed church during lockdown. And that's, saying that would be a massive understatement. I've missed the gathering of God's people together under his word and his rule. I've missed the blessing of the union we have as God's people together. I've missed true fellowship, sharing my life as part of the family of believers in this church. I've missed praying together as a church. I've missed the smiles of young and old. I've missed the hugs. I've missed sharing tears of sorrows with, uh, with, with others, as well as the rejoicing with others' joys. I've missed that witness of singing together loudly and boldly to the glory of God. I've missed the simple little things of the children in the church running around and dancing as we sing. Why? Because being together reminds us of what God has done for his people, whom he has begiven, whom he has loved, whom he has gathered. And, do you know, perhaps one of the big lessons of lockdown is how easy it is to take the blessing of God's gathering his people together under his word for granted. And I pray that as we look forward to the day when we're able to gather again, it might be something that we cherish. And as we cherish our fellowship, I pray that we would be more and more motivated to see how God's people gathered testify to the great work that Christ has done. To bring us all into relationship with God, a relationship of peace and life, a relationship with one another and with God. But that brings us to the last point this morning, and it's God's people preserved. God's people preserved. What I love about the Genesis story is that because it's history, we have to take note of all that happens and not just sweep the things that we find boring or difficult under the carpet. So as we read chapter 46, we have to ask ourselves, why does the writer of Genesis include these details here? Why does he insist on listing out all the people who came with Jacob to Egypt? And why does he record this random dream that Jacob had? Why doesn't he just cut them out, uh, like the musical, and finish on a high? Well, the answer is, that God wants us not just to see that his people are gathered together under his blessing and rule but that they are preserved for his purposes too you see what the writer of Genesis is trying to show us is that God is faithful to his promises to Abraham and I know we keep pointing to it but Genesis 12 verse 1 to 3 are the important bits God promises Abraham there that Abraham would Abraham and his descendants would inherit land and blessing and nation, and they would bless all nations. So Genesis represents a faithful record of the descendants of Abraham. And they show us how God is a promise-keeping God. Throughout the book of Genesis, when you look at uh, the list of names, they become more and more specifically about Israel. They start off in chapter five with a genealogy of the nations, but here at the end of the book, they're specifically about Israel. Jacob's descendant and and the descendants who would become the people through whom God would bring his Messiah. And the promise in this list is that God says to Jacob in his vision before he leaves Canaan that he would bring them back. Look at verse one to six. So Israel set out with all that was his. And when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, Jacob replied. God said, I am the God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. This vision comes just before Jacob leaves Canaan. It's a big step for Jacob because God has promised that land to him and to his descendants forever. So so Jacob was concerned that leaving for Egypt would be walking away from God's promises. Abraham had gone to Egypt years earlier and that had been a bad decision. So the question in the air is should God's people leave God's promised land, especially after the grief that had come to them by not following God's ways. Well, here's the grace of God in this situation. In the vision, God reassures Jacob that what he was about to do is God's will. And in it lies a big lesson. Jacob is taught that God is not tied to a particular place or land and that Egypt is a stepping stone on the way to the people of God becoming a nation. So in going down to Egypt, God would go with them and God would bless them and God would one day bring them out of Egypt. In that land, he would preserve them and make them great. So why do we need to listen to this today? Well, because this is a great lesson for the church, today particularly in our times you see some people think that the church is an organization or a club or a bit like a gym uh, a gym membership or or, or a rotary club Uh, for some the mentality seems to be that we can join up for a time and then move on to a better church when we need to change others think that they can join if they feel like it and leave it without affecting others But this seemingly boring passage tells us that God's people are more than a club. You see, the church, like this fledgling fledgling Israelite nation, is a family. And because we're family, it means that we're not perfect or amazing. Actually, one of the things we try to say to newcomers when they join is is that the church is guaranteed to let you down. The church is guaranteed to drive you mad. And it shouldn't surprise us because the face of the church is the face of a sinner. But having said that, and all those things about church, we have to remember that church is the bunch of saved sinners who know Jesus and love him. And as family, that is what binds us together. That is what makes us love one another. We are far more than a club. And that is what we need to hear today. Now, just as our sense of family is being threatened by our inability to meet together. So isn't it good news that God reminds us in this passage of the importance of church family, God's people, to him? And in reminding us of the importance of church family to God, I hope it encourages us to seek faithful ways that we might do church in lockdown. You see, one of the unique things about church in in the Bible is that church is not about buildings or places. It's about people. And that means as lockdown restrictions ease, we're able to take the opportunity to fellowship with one another in our homes, according to government guidelines. In our homes, we're allowed to sing together. We're allowed to eat together. We're allowed to listen to God's word together. We're allowed to ask one another questions about faith and love for Jesus and help one another grow in Christ as family ought to. And as we do church family together, whatever the circumstances, we trust Jesus to lead us just like God led Israel into the land of Egypt and cared for his people there. So we've seen how God gathers and preserves his people in this account of Joseph. And that's exactly the same for us today. And it's an encouragement today to lift our eyes off our current circumstances that are separating us and an encouragement to praise God for Jesus. Because in him and in his forgiveness, we are just as gathered as we ever were when we were meeting in one place. And he is preserving us in just the same way as he ever did. So even though we might be physically separated, the truth is this, spiritually, we are still God's family. And even though our near-term future might be uncertain... Just like Israel, our long-term journey is one that takes us to God's promised land. One that restores us so that we might one day see Jesus face to face. Let me pray. Father God, we praise you so much for just the joy that we have in knowing that Jesus has taken the hit and forgiven us. Jesus has given us family and restored us into relationship with him. Lord Jesus, we praise you that because of your sacrifice, we are gathered together under your rule as your family. And that because of God the Holy Spirit in us, we are preserved as your family. We praise you, Lord, for bringing us this great privilege of being church family together. And we praise you for the great truth that says we don't rely on places of worship to worship together and do church family together. Actually, church family is the people. Oh, Father God, may you embed that in our hearts. May we long to see one another, long to serve one another, long to love one another, long to weep with one another, long to rejoice with one another, long to dance with one another long to pray with one another, long to read your word with one another. Lord God, may we just long to be your people um, more and more and more, in spite of our circumstances, in spite of where we are, so that, Father God, we might remind ourselves of the great truth that is to come when God's people will be gathered together under God's rule in God's land experiencing his blessing, his joy and the wonderful promises that the future glory of the kingdom of God have in store for us. Oh Father God as we read this passage all about your people being gathered and being preserved may we be reminded of all that you have done for us and the great future joy that we have in Christ. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.